if we kind of start towards the end and work back, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. That's a word that all of us need to hear today, but it's a word that some of us really need to hear today. My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for your sin, although that's not the main point of the text, but it is sufficient for your sin. My grace is sufficient for your weakness. My grace is sufficient for the challenges you face. My grace is sufficient for your pain. My grace is sufficient for your depression. My grace is sufficient for your frailty. My grace is sufficient for depression. My grace is sufficient for the opposition you face and the temptations you face and whatever you can put in fill in the blank. Not Chris's grace. God's grace is sufficient. There's nothing you're going to face that will outstrip the ability of God's grace to sustain you and outstrip the the ability of God's grace to hold you. So if we start at the end and work backwards from there, you need to hear that word. God's grace is sufficient. And it's in the weakness you think will break you that his power is actually able to most operate and most use you. Let's pray and then we'll read the text and then we'll jump in from the beginning. So Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room and I pray for myself. Let us feel the truth just like we know the truth that your grace is sufficient. Lord, we can't run far enough away that it won't be sufficient. We can't hurt bad enough that it won't be sufficient. We can't be weak or limited in ourselves enough for it not to be sufficient. And so I pray that our weaknesses and our limitations and our challenges would just grant us to just throw ourselves back on top of grace. To humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God that He, that You might exalt us in due time. That it might break us enough to throw our anxieties and cares upon You as we remind ourselves over and over and over again of how You care for us. That we might not let the mirror or Satan or the world or our friends or our spouse or our kids or anything else say to us that your grace isn't enough. To say to us you're too weak to be used, you're too limited to be of any value and God just don't let us believe it. Let us instead declare that very weakness is a boast. Because your power is displayed in using weak people, frail people. And so, Father, show off the glory of your grace. Show off the majesty of your power through weak vessels like us. And God, if we don't know we're weak yet, give us the grace to show us we are. That we might boast all the more in our weakness, not our strength. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12... 1 through 10, your notes are a typo, I did it, just trying to apply the weakness thing. Uh, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord, 
I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So as we've been going through 2 Corinthians, the big overarching theme that we've been going back to is Christ is the supreme and worthy treasure, even if that brings slander in your life, even if that brings suffering into your life, even if that brings affliction into your life. And the big section that's wrapping up the book is the section of boasting and foolishness. Where Paul is illustrating by boasting himself, he's illustrating how totally foolish it is for us to boast in anything about us. For us to boast in our greatness or our accomplishments or our success or our spirituality or our speaking ability or anything else, it's utterly foolish to boast about us. And, of course, if there's enough quietness and humility in our life, we look in the mirror and we know that's true. But he's battling people that have not realized that's true. And so he is boasting to expose the bankruptcy of boasting and the foolishness of boasting. And so last week we used it to show there are proper grounds of boasting. But your proper ground of boasting is not your heritage. It's not your upbringing. It's not being raised in church. It's not the family lineage you have. The proper ground of boasting isn't your past service for the Lord. Look how great you served the Lord back then. Look what God did last year. Look what God used to do. But it's also not your present service. You can work yourself to death for Jesus and it still doesn't allow you to stand before Jesus and boast about anything. The proper ground of boasting is that there is enough grace in God to keep me faithful no matter what life brings. If life brings active opposition from the evil of people or active opposition because I follow Jesus or if life brings calamity, if life brings circumstances Obviously ordained by God. If, if, if the world brings circumstances that are breaking and hard, is there grace that kept me faithful? I'll boast about that all day long, Paul says. And I'll boast that I love the church so much that it makes me anxious for the people around me to know their spiritual condition. I'll boast about my weakness. And then as he moves in to the text this week, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in your weakness. That's the big overarching tag on it. Is that there's sufficient grace for suffering. Sufficient grace for our limitations. Sufficient grace for our 
failures. And see, God can't use us when we're strong. God can use you when you're weak. God can use you when you're broken. God can use you when your circumstances pile up on top of you. God can use you when you are humbled. But what God can't do, He can. I mean, you understand how I'm using that, right? I won't tell God what He can and can't do. The condition He can't use us in the most is the condition of of us being strong and us being okay. It's in our weakness that his power is put best on display. So, boast in any weakness that shows God's power and grace. Boast in any weakness in your life that shows God's power and grace. The first step in this, special encounters with God are for personal growth, not public glory. Special encounters with God are for personal growth, not public glory. Now, this is going to run against every fiber of our being. Because we live in such a self-promotion age. See, any experience I have with God is an experience that must be captured on Instagram. And in fact, if we're on Facebook enough, what you'll realize, if you actually have a quiet time, you're reading your quiet time thinking, what's a good thought that I could post publicly? And no longer am I worried about God speaking to me. I'm worried about what can I share with everybody about my spirituality that God spoke to me. And there's a huge disconnect when I'm reading the Word to preach the Word. Or I'm reading the Word to post the Word with a great picture and filter behind it. Or I'm reading the Word to put some great comment about my spirituality on a social media platform. There's a huge disconnect between that and God nurturing my soul to abide in Christ because we've been together in ways that nobody else needs to know about. But we're a self-promotion age. If I'm going to have a social media fast, what's the first thing i got to do? Tell everybody. But where does that fit with Scripture? Like, wash your face. Right? Don't let people know you're fasting. Just do it and be quiet about it. I would say that probably applies to social media as well. And so when we go to God privately to have something public, we take something out of that. Or you have some great conference experience or great retreat. And I pray for our students that are away on retreats this week that, man, they will have meaningful, powerful times with God. But we do that, and then we got to send some cryptic message. Amazing time with Jesus and these guys this week. Who's the spotlight of all of this? Jesus becomes a light to shine on me and my experiences as opposed to me going alone before the Father. To gain an experience of the Father that sustains me, that grants me perseverance, that changes me, that sanctifies me. And so, I have to think we have to look at ourselves. We've been wired to declare everything public. We need to pull ourselves off of that. And I need to go seek the heart of God for God to change and strengthen me. And I want to encourage you to that. It may mean you need to do a fast and not tell anybody about it. But just, I don't post anything about my spiritual life for a while. Because I want to know, am I really going to God to get God, or am I going to God to get something to say about God, or something to say about my spirituality? Special encounters are meant for personal growth, not public glory. Their entire ministry is built around great experiences. Big things happening. Public glory. But if God were to let us see underneath, not all of them, some of them, if God were to let us to see underneath, where's the heart behind it? 
you wouldn't be seeing glory. You'd be seeing the glory of man. And so, what if our experience, amazing experiences with God, our quiet times, and you should be having those. What if your amazing experiences with God in worship, what if your amazing experiences God with, a con- with God at a conference are not meant to be declared publicly, but they are meant for you to store up in your heart, to sustain you, to strengthen you, to change you, to grow you, to give you perseverance through what's coming next. I'm going to pose that's probably more likely than that it needs to be broadcast to point out how spiritual we are. Right? Because, I mean, I sure do look spiritual if I've got a nice Bible. And I'll just go to the page I've marked up. I won't go to the other pages, you know, like Leviticus. But I'll go to the pages I've marked up. It's got a really cool verse on love or peace. And, yeah, I'll just stick my coffee cup beside it. Man, that guy's cool and spiritual. But if I wanted to be really cool, I'll stick my wine glass there and my Bible. And I'll pose it neatly with a good tablecloth under it. Click. Man, cool and spiritual. All at the same time. And I'm just going to say no. I found, I'm saying this to me because I've found myself doing this before. I'm like, okay, no more. I'm not reading my Bible to say anything to anybody else. I'm going to read my Bible for God to say something to me. And that's what I want to put before you. And that's what I want to put before me. Let's look at it in the text. Paul on a pretty big scale doing this. So I must go on boasting. I mean, I've got to continue this because I've got to win you back from these people. Although there's nothing to be gained by it. And so he's already exposed, look, it is totally foolish for you to boast in you. It is totally foolish to boast in your comparison to other people. Or it's totally foolish to boast in, in um, you know, gaining approval from other people. Or your accomplishments or your success or anything about you. It's totally foolish and it's bankrupt. But then he takes another step. It's not just foolish and it's not just empty and bankrupt. It's unprofitable. There's nothing to be gained from it. You're not going to gain anything before God, and you're not going to gain anything before the genuine uh, people of God by boasting. Why do you do it then, Paul? Because you're joining right in. Because unfortunately, though, there's nothing for me to profit by it. There is much to lose if I don't take this track, this tact given by the Holy Spirit, because this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. If I don't take this track to win you back... To, to throw off these false teachers? If I don't do that, there's too much to lose for me not to. But what you see in the text is a, is a difference because Paul is stepping into an area that is so holy, an area that is so wonderful, that you see Paul pull back from his boasting. He's like, I'm going to have to go here, but I'm going to have to go here in the third person. And you're like, I didn't take English for like 25 years, so what is that? Paul starts talking about himself as that man as he. So you see that? So I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. These ecstatic, great experiences of God. These visions of the spiritual realm. These visions of God. These special revelations of the Lord. That's the next in the list of boasts that I'm going to confront. And the ancient world was riddled with people and charlatans who would have a vision or have a revelation and they would describe the spiritual world and they would describe the spiritual experiences and, and use these visions to create followers from themselves. And this was true in the pagan world, the ancient, the mystic cults. It was true in the Jewish world. There was Jewish mysticism. It was true in the church. got imported in. It's been true throughout church history and it's true today. I've had this revelation. You need to come to me because I've had this revelation. I've had this vision and this experience that those normal boring people haven't had. Therefore, you should come to my church, follow my ministry, give to me. 
So I'll go on divisions and revelations just like they're going on divisions and revelations. And we'll describe the journey through the spiritual realm. And we'll tell you all these wonderful things God says. By the way, I'm going to just tell you something. Okay, the Holy Spirit wrote a book. 66 books long. And we have got a culture of people that builds on a history of a culture of people that wants a new revelation. We want a new thing. We want God to say something new. We want a special event. We want a new word from God. But we got a generation that won't open the book that he wrote to get it. So let me go find a pastor who can tell me some special new thing. Let me go have this prophetic word that I'm going to share with each other. Nobody opens up the book. Master this bad boy. There's plenty there for an eternity. Master this. Then let's go look for a new revelation. I have a feeling you got a lifetime of subject matter. But we want to run around to the new. It's too much work to go to what the Holy Spirit wrote. It's too much work to say that all words of Scripture are God-breathed. And we know it. They're profitable for reproof and for training in righteousness and doctrine. But I want a new thing. Tell me a new thing. So I'll go on to visions and revelations, just like these old, uh, these, these false teachers have done, these visions and revelations. But notice, like, there's something too precious about this where Paul won't use Paul anymore. And so he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. He's talking about Paul. And that's what I mean by the third person. So instead of saying Paul and I, he's like, God, this is too close to the line. Something in me just doesn't feel okay with this. And so look, I know a man and you know how we know, you know how we're going to identify this man? He's an in Christ man. There is a Christ-centeredness, a Christ-identification with this guy. And he was so in Christ and so centered on Christ and so identified with Christ. That's how we're going to know him before we go into this vision and experience that he had. And it's 14 years old. And to our, uh, to our knowledge, nowhere else has he written about this experience of 14 years ago. It wasn't a book like the prophets have or John had. Seal it up to a later time. It wasn't a book to describe the 90-second experience so you can make a movie about it and a massive production of books about it to make a bunch of money. It wasn't one of those kind of things. 14 years ago it happened. Nothing said about it since. But to this point, he has to bring it up because he's, he's dealing with it again. But think about that. Why would Paul have this experience that would give him all kinds of credibility? And there would be all kinds of people wanting to follow Paul if they just knew he had been to the third heaven. He has been to the highest heaven, the the most heavenly heaven, the the place where all the good stuff is. If we knew he had been there, man, we didn't Paul, we'd have never left. Why didn't you just throw it down? And I think the point is what we're saying. Because this experience for Paul was a special gift of God. For his private faithfulness that was not given to him to be made public. Because when we have experiences like this, the temptation is for us to tell the experience and people follow the experience, not hear the message of the cross and follow the message of the cross. And so Paul was not looking for followers of Paul. He was looking for followers of Jesus and him crucified. 
And that's why I think it's 14 years old. And that's why I think it hasn't been declared. And that's why I think, unlike the false teachers, like, here's how it looks in the spiritual realm. He's like, I don't have a clue how I got there. It may have been in the body. It may have been out of the body. God knows I have no clue. Wait! We want some details. Show us what heaven is like. I have no clue how I got there. Tell us the journey to the spiritual realms. We'll make a movie. I have no clue how I got there. God knows. I don't know. And by the way, what about the message? Paul, tell us what God said. I can't. It is too holy and it is too wonderful for human ears now. These are words that can't be uttered. That's unsatisfying. If you're going to go there, tell us about it. And if you're going to go there, tell us what was said. And so instead of even turning this into this opportunity for Paul, he's putting it off on this guy in Christ, and then he's not giving us the details we want to know. There is a reason that God has not seen fit to describe heaven any more than he has. And I don't mean to hurt your feelings. Look at me, I love you. You guys love me, you all right? I don't believe that we need somebody's special experience to come back and tell us what heaven is like in a way that is going to change the fundamentals of our, of our view of God and what He's prepared for those who love Him. He's given us what He wants us to know by the Holy Spirit. And if He does give other people more, I believe it's to cement them in Jesus Not for the sake of public glory in the eyes of other people. Alright, and so, I don't know if it was in the body. I missed this, because you guys see this. Um, I know a man who in Christ 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. You know what the word caught up means? Snatched. Almost kidnapped. So Paul's not sitting there, how can I work myself up into a frenetic spiritual state to get a vision? Paul's not sitting there, how can, how can I get a new revelation from the Lord? Paul's going about his business for the Lord. And God snatches him and says, here, here's heaven. There's no special preparation because it's all about God, not about Paul. It's not about you seeking out something. If God wants to give you some special encounter with God, you just follow God. Let Him worry about that. Let Him do the snatching. That way the snatching is a God-centered snatching, not a me Worked up trance. And so, God snatched me up, and I don't know, but I heard things that were beyond my ability to communicate. And so, look, pride is rampant in your heart. You know how I know that? Because it's rampant in my heart, too. And it's all over this book that it's rampant in our heart. And so, what we have to ask ourselves with each post and each picture and each thing we share about our spiritual lives or about anything... Is this self-promotion to point to my spirituality? Or is this genuinely, humbly, something I believe God would have for the people I'm sharing it with? What's really happening here? Am I making something public that God meant to be a private gift to me? We have to ask ourselves with that verse that stood out. We have to ask ourselves that with what we're tempted to throw back online. Was this something for, for me? Or is it something that is supposed to be made? And then if it is, are my motives pure in sharing it? 
Are my motives pure and sharing it? And so am I more concerned with my private life with God and cultivating and abiding in Christ and doing the hard work of pursuing the heart of God privately? Or am I willing to substitute it for a public look-alike? A facade of spirituality that looks good to the people around me, looks good to the church, looks good to my followers. But it's missing that deep abiding work that God is pleased with. So that's step one. The second step, strive to be known by an ordinary life of faithfulness, not a spectacular show. Strive to be known by an ordinary life of faithfulness, not a spectacular show. Think how obsessed we are with celebrity. We have reality shows all over the place focused on people who are famous for nothing more than being famous. Yet they've got a show, right? We're focused with celebrities. We follow celebrity gossip. There is gossip columns. There is gossip tabloids. There is gossip sites on the internet who exist and and pay thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to follow people around to get us some dish on celebrities. Why do you care? Right? And then on top of that, if a celebrity says something, I'm supposed to take their old jacked up life opinion and, and think about how it should apply to my life. And they want to give me opinions about how to live my life and what matters to me. And they want to tell me that. And I actually listen. I don't because I care, but we listen. Have you looked at their lives lately? How's that working out for them? Why would you take their advice on anything? But they're celebrities. They're famous. Of course, we got to listen. Why? Because they're famous. For what? Being famous. Now, some of them can sing and some of them can act and, you know. It's easy to spend other people's money when you make 20 million bucks a picture, right? Am I right? It's easy to look down on the rest of us trying to figure out life and navigate family and and all this other stuff. It's easy to do that from, from a palace. All right, sorry. Let's move on. What if ordinary became our new extraordinary? What if the new evaluation of celebrity in our lives was ordinary faithfulness? And instead of looking for the extraordinary, looking for the famous, looking for the celebrity, we're looking for people who walk the walk. We're looking for people who love their spouse. We're looking for people who love their kids. We're looking for people... Who, who serve others and love others. We're looking for people who bring people and surround their tables with people. We're looking for people who, who are, are loving others well and sacrificing to serve other people. And, and we're like, that's, that's celebrity. That, that's gonna be the evaluation that I wanna put on people to whether I look up to them or not is, are, are they living this? Are they loving Jesus and loving people and, and loving the church and serving the church and serving people? Like that's, that's, that's the extraordinary. That's what I'm going to look up to. Because I think that's what we should. Let's make ordinary the new extraordinary. Look at this as Paul goes on. And so as he continues on, on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I won't boast except for of my weaknesses, though I wouldn't be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. And so kind of capturing that, again, too precious, too holy, can't even say the words of what I heard in heaven. So I'll boast on that guy, that Christ-centered guy. I won't boast in me. If I'm going to boast in me, let me tell you, I've been beaten more times than I care to count. 
I've faced death a lot. I've had people turn on me in the church. I've had people turn on me in my, in my, uh, my own countrymen. I've had people turn on me that were Gentiles. That, you know, I'll boast in my weaknesses. I'll boast in the scars that are all over me. I'll boast in how, man, I ain't much to know and I ain't much to hear. That's my boast. But of this guy, this, this guy with the vision, you know, that's who we'll boast about. Right? And then he, he goes on and he, and he says about this one, even if I were to boast in it, I wouldn't be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth. And so what Paul is saying here is that I, I would still have a proper appro- appreciation in my heart that that vision didn't save me. That vision didn't make me better than other Christians. That vision that was above what probably any other Christian will ever experience, that didn't put me in a special status. I'm still just Paul, slave of Jesus. That's me. Not Paul, slave of Jesus, who's had vision, versus you, slave of Jesus, who hadn't. I'm just Paul, slave of Jesus. And so I would still have a proper appreciation for who I am. I'm not caught up in it. And it's true. Right? And so that, that's what he's saying in that. But look at it. I refrain from doing this boasting about the vision. Why? So that no one may think anything more of me than what they see in me. And no one will think any more of me than what they have heard from me. How does Paul want to be evaluated? Paul, the seer of visions? Paul, the builder of the church? Paul, the great missionary? No. How does Paul want to be known and evaluated? You look at Paul's life. You look at Paul's integrity. You look at Paul's faithfulness. You look at the ordinary, mundane, day in, day out life and ministry of Paul. And don't you dare think one more thing than what you see. Because you're going to see imperfection. You're going to see a guy that's pretty driven, even when that driven sometimes breaks relationships. You're going to see a guy that, that has been in despair before. You're going to see a guy that's been perplexed before. You're going to get, see a guy that is so consumed with the mission that I can't let anything get in the way of the mission. And these are great things, but they're also things that, that are challenging. But don't you dare think one more ounce of who Paul is than what you've seen about his life. Because you, he lived among you for a couple of years. And, and, and what was there when you saw it? An imperfect guy loving Jesus. An imperfect guy serving Jesus. An imperfect guy pointing you to Jesus and pointing you to the cross and boasting only in the cross. An imperfect guy who you can look down on because he didn't speak well enough. Don't you dare think one ounce more of me than what you saw by evaluating my life and my integrity and then what you heard from me. You heard a message, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus and Him crucified. So what did you hear? The gospel. What did you hear? Jesus saves dead people and makes them alive and forgives their sin and adopts them into the family of God and seals them for all eternity. That's what you heard. And so don't think a word about me or anything about me and my eloquence or anything about how fancy my speech was or anything about my great philosophical mind. You think about the message of Jesus you heard from me and don't think anything more about me than that. If we were to say, evaluate me by looking at my life, what would the evaluation be? What would your evaluation be? Do we want people to measure us by the comments we can put on Facebook that are clever? Do we want people to measure us by 
teaching good lessons? Do we want people to measure us by these really keen, wonderful insights we can share in Sunday school? Or do we want people to look into our lives and see a very imperfect integrity? And that's enough. Evaluate us by ordinary faithfulness, not the public stuff. Not the spectacular stuff. I can't think of anything that would be a greater failure in my life than y'all be standing up here preaching my funeral. Like, man, Chris could preach. That was it? Like, he is a very broken, imperfect dude, but man, he loved us. That dude, he was imperfect, get angry, he's a little driven, but man, he served. He cared about people. He loved his family. Like, that's what I want to hear. If it's true, I don't want you lying. I don't want to put you in that spot. But if that's what's true, that's what I want to be evaluated by. Not a public ministry up here 45 minutes a week, but does his life imperfectly say the same things that, that, that this time says? And I want to be challenged by God for it to increasingly look the same. And so, as we look at this section, we evaluate on a new standard of ordinary faithfulness. Not spectacular. Last step. Limitations and nagging challenges are often used to keep us humble and usable. Limitations and nagging challenges are often used to keep us humble and usable. You know, I think about my my life, you know, writing the sermon, I'm just thinking like, man, that God can get anything done through me. Amazes me sometimes. And I'm not saying that as a humble brag. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like, I've had ulcerative colitis since 2001. And it doesn't flare up a ton. It flares up sometimes. But I just live with this low-grade fatigue all the time. Just what it is. It's normal. It's life. Occasionally it flares up and gets worse. I'm mildly depressive pretty much my whole life. Sometimes worse than mild. You know, you just kind of... Get up and you, you do your thing and low energy and low focus sometimes and just, ugh, things are a little harder than they seem like they should be. And sometimes just the monumental step of getting out of bed and putting one foot in front of the other is like, ah, I don't think, I, I can't do this today, God. And then every week, you gotta have a sermon. You don't know what happened this week though. Not supposed to. Every week there's gotta be a word. And how amazing it is. And, you know, like, focus is not something I'm good at. I've got all the initials. I'm OCD. Somebody flipped the blinds the wrong way again after I corrected them this morning. And I notice it. And then somebody actually pointed out, it's still in my heart as gravel, somebody wrote on our new chairs. Come on! I'm OCD. I'm ADD, right? Squirrel. (laughs) And the fact that God gets anything done at all. And I don't say this like as a joke. I say this for real. That God can get anything done in this church and anything done. It's amazing. And one of the things that, that, I'm not putting myself in this category. But one of the things that I've seen is true. Some of the best, most of the best servants of God walk with a limp. Most of the best servants of God walk with a limp. You may walk with a limp. And you may need to hear this word. 
Jacob walked with a literal limp. Paul has a thorn in the flesh. Spurgeon was massively depressed. Spent large seasons of his life not getting out of bed. Luther had gas. <laughs> Something to break the ice, right? <laughs> we all have our limitations. <laughs> right? It's hopeful. Right? Most of God's best servants have had some version of limp, some version of weakness, some version of challenge, something that made it a little harder. It's not sin we're talking about. It's not temptation. It's frailty. And I believe this is why, because this is the formula. Limitations are meant to keep us humble. Humble opens us up to the grace of God. The grace of God is what makes us usable at all. Limitations are meant to keep us humble. Humble alone opens us up to the grace of God. The grace of God makes us usable at all. And that's what you see in Paul's life here. After this great revelation, after this great vision, after this thing, to keep him from becoming conceited, to keep him from pride at his strength, minus the thorns, minus the challenge, to keep him from pride that could have made him more acceptable socially or more powerful in a pulpit. The things that we think limit Paul's usefulness and that the Corinthians think limit his usefulness are the very things that make him usable at all and make him more usable. And so your limitations don't limit God. Your limitations drive you to God and make you usable at all in the least. And so, because, so to keep me from being conceited by this great revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh to keep me from pride that would have killed my ministry. But I'd have been healthy. Pride that would have killed my ministry even though I would have had a stronger voice or stronger eyesight or whatever the thorn was. To keep me from pride, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And there's been every speculation in the book as to what that thorn was. We don't know. Some of the candidates, poor eyesight, some sort of facial disfigurement, speech impediment, maybe some sort of illness that we don't know about, but we think it was probably something physical because it seems like everybody knew what it was. And so Paul's just like, you guys all know this. You've all seen this. So whatever it was, was somehow known or seen. And so whatever it was, it was a messenger of Satan because sometimes God allows Satan to buffet, to, to trial, to do something in our life for his purposes, under his control, right? To, to do something in our life And in this case, to do something that keeps you humble. A thorn, a messenger of Satan, allowed by God, controlled by God, under the authority of God, for the express purpose of your humility. And Paul prayed. Paul had the gift of healing. Paul raised people from the dead. Paul made like people get up and walk. And yet Paul's praying, God, would you just take this illness, this deformity, this thing from me. Right? Would you just take it away? And he prayed three times. That may mean over and over I prayed. And Paul got an answer from God. But was it the answer that Paul wanted from God? You realize that's two different things, right? God will answer your prayers. It doesn't mean God will give you what you want in your prayers. It's different things. And so Paul, please take it away, God. Please take it away, God. Paul, here's your answer. My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. 
Whatever it is, it's sufficient. And I think there's a reason that they don't, that God doesn't define it for us, because I think it's meant to speak more broadly to Paul's specific limitation, to all of our limitations, to say the same universal truth. His grace is sufficient for His people, whatever it is His people are facing. Whatever frailty, whatever weakness, whatever failure, or, 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 or challenge, His grace is sufficient. And His power is then put on display through our weaknesses. His power is perfected in our weaknesses. And so I'll just read these closing verses. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? Because that, that lets the power of Christ rest upon me. And so for the sake of Christ, for the sake of His power resting in my life, filling my life, I'll be content with all the weaknesses He sees fit to give me. I'll be content with all the insults y'all want to throw at me. I'll be content with every hardship God allows to be brought into my life and every persecution that people come against me and every calamity that just happens. Because all it does is make me weaker and stronger at the same time. All it does is make me weaker and more usable at the same time. So I'm perfectly content with the breaking of God in my life. The limitations that God puts on my life. Because it is those limitations that allow the power of God to actually work through my life. Bring it on. I'll take it. And so the question that comes down to us. Will we embrace our frailty? Will we embrace our weakness? Will we embrace our limitations not as an excuse to sit down and stop? but as a license to run after God and be used by God? Will we look at our limitations and will we stop because of them? It's a great excuse. You should take it easy. You should go ahead and rest on what you've already done. And you'll have people in your circles that will tell you that very thing. Oh man, that is so hard, you should stop. You're, you're so weak... You're so frail in this case. It makes sense. Except for these last three verses. There's a power that can come through your life. Not in spite of your weakness, but because of it. There's a usefulness to God that will come through your weakness. That would not be able to come any other way. And so will we embrace it? Will we be content with it? Because we want God to use us that, that deeply. A couple practical things. I'll just read them as we go. Keep your private life with the Lord private plus. We want you in relationships of growth and change. We want you to encounter God meaningfully and bring that encounter to the heart and lives of the people around you in a way that, that genuinely works in their lives. But, but your private life with God is meant to be private and then for those in the circle that, that can keep you humble enough but also receive Not just the public, wow, they're great, but the private, look, I've seen you all jacked up, but I've also seen God speaking to you, and and God's used both of those in my life. So keep it private. And if there is a group that God means to edify and encourage through you, a small little group of people, three or four, keep it private and maybe add it to that. Second, aim for a life of faithfulness and integrity. Quit the act. You can fool me, but who cares? 
keep myself from going. You can fool everybody here. Who cares? The one who sees all, knows all, knows all from beginning to end, past, present, and future. That's the one with whom you have to do and whom you lie naked and and exposed before his eyes. It won't do you any good to have an act with me and us. There's a God who sees. And the God who sees is also the God who crucified his son to rescue you from it. And so aim for faithfulness, integrity in the heart, not the facade. Quit letting your limitations limit God. Don't let your limitations be one more excuse for one more day of sitting down. Let your limitations drive you to him, access his grace, and then see his power work through you. Let's pray. Father, you are a great and gracious God. Wake our hearts up to that truth.